It's 4 p.m. Stand up. It's count time. It's time for every man and woman to stand up and be counted. I'm Brother L.D. Azobra, and I'd like to welcome you to another edition of Count Time Podcast. Once again, we got a special guest here, dear friend, brother, confidant, Dr. Thomas J. Durant. Welcome to Count Time. Dr. Durant, give me your... your Kwame. Uh, Kwame. O'Reilly Diakwa. That's just a true African name that has a meaning to it. We are here to continue our discussion that we're having with Dr. Durant. We talked a lot about your educational journey, how you end up at these different places to get from a high school degree to your master's to your Ph.D. Yeah, well, good evening, and it's good to be here again on Count Time. And it's a very fascinating show that you have. I'm happy to be a part of the, the education and the engagement and your podcast has. And I think it's a wonderful, a wonderful um, opportunity to collect and preserve our history of people and, and also help educate people about uh, what's going on in, in the world through the lens of some of the people that have been on your show. So it's good Thank to be back that. again Thank on, on words, count time, Doc. and I'm I'm always intrigued by um, you know the concept of stand up and be counted, you know, and and it sort of raises the question for me: Why stand up, and what are you going to stand up for? And I think you know each person has to address that, you know, and 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 then the other part of it is um, which you state at the end of your show that you can shackle the, the hands and the shackle the feet, but you can't shackle the mind. And what does that mean, you know, to different individuals? Because it forces you to think about what you are doing in everyday life, who owns you, how much freedom and independence you have. Maybe you should have a show on that, you know, talk about the real meaning of freedom and equality and all of those concepts that relate to people being shackled or unshackled mm. and it's a wonderful concept and again I'm I'm happy to be here on your show. I'm going to talk about leaving the Midwest and coming back to the South, returning to the South. <laughs> Return to the uh, South. I was able to get out of the South, not that it's a bad place, but there are some restrictions and limitations in the South to freedom uh, and equality. And it's just a part of the history of, of the South and in Louisiana where I live that you have to deal with these kind of struggles all the time and it's always in your your mind and your consciousness of how you're going to be able to live in an area where you have such uh, blatant racism and inequalities that exist and we always hear the the notion that Louisiana is first and everything is bad and last and everything is good and, and you tell people you're from Louisiana and they look at you like, well, how are you able to live down there? And I had to talk, tell people up in Wisconsin, you know, a little bit about how I was able to survive in Louisiana. And, and it's not all that different from how you're able to survive up there. You know, you just change the scenario a bit and turn it around and you got similar kinds of issues. Although some of them may differ in terms of the, the day-to-day struggles that you face. But anyway, I was fortunate enough to land in Wisconsin, and I was telling you about those stepping stones where you can't see the last one, but you only can see the one right in front of you. And so once I got to Wisconsin, I was able to 
experienced that as a new part of the journey in life. But finally, I, I was successful in completing my doctoral degree up there, and, I, and that's a whole nother story I would tell you about navigating the, the Wisconsin winters, you know, 20 below zero, and the Midwestern culture and the people. To say nothing about navigating the studies at the University of Wisconsin, and, and when I arrived there, a professor told me that uh, I wasn't going to make it. When I did make it, he congratulated me. When professor Archibald Haller, he said, I congratulate you because I was wrong. What he was saying was that a Southern boy can come out of Louisiana and come to the great state of Wisconsin, to the great University of Wisconsin, and be successful. But he don't realize he motivates uh, you that much more. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And, and I told uh, Professor Haller that, well, all I wanted was an opportunity. That's all I ever wanted it was an opportunity. I, I was accepted to the University of Wisconsin. I got that opportunity. So I'm not worried about surviving here because even if I don't make it and complete the requirements, I still am successful because I've already been successful in living in the South and, 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 and uh, well, have lived can, there. You can survive anywhere. So yeah, I can, so I, I can survive any place. And also I've been successful in spite of, because I have a master's degree, had a job at Tuskegee University, and so if I don't make it at the University of Wisconsin, I can go someplace else and continue my education or I can um, get a job and be successful at that. I'm glad I have the opportunity to be here. After I finished, I graduated from the University of Wisconsin in December 1973. And of course, to his credit, the first person who congratulated me upon completion of my Degree, uh, PhD degree was Professor Haller. So I give him credit for that. You know, he said he uh, apparently he was wrong. Uh, he didn't estimate uh, I was unusual or something. And so I was very cordial and thanked him and everything. Uh, but it taught him a lesson too. Don't judge a book by its color or its cover. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Where he's from, <laughs> so you can be from the south, but you can not only survive in the north, but you can thrive, and it's already been proven many times over, not just with me. I gained a lot from the University of Wisconsin, but I also left a lot, and that's key because I taught and shared with a lot of other people things about my life that they didn't know. So they were the beneficiaries of my knowledge and experience. So it's always a two-way street. It's always a two-way street. So yes, the, uh, the University of, uh, of Wisconsin provided the opportunity for me to get a degree, but I also helped to enhance their education about my background, my career, about the South, and about my experiences. And so I let Professor Haller know that, look, Education is two-way. You learn from me and I learn from you. It's, it's not one way. And, and, and he was very humble enough to accept that. And, and so I left the University of Wisconsin really making friends in that regard. So they were happy to have me up there. So they gained a lot of respect for you. Yeah, and gained respect for me as much as I was happy to be there and gain respect for them. And I'll never forget, and I, the other part of the story after this, I had a meeting with uh, Professor Schwartz at the University of Wisconsin, and he wanted to know what it was like 
to grow up in the South as a young man? And you know, that's a question that maybe other people in other parts of the country may not have had a first-hand knowledge and experience for someone to tell them. So I shared with him of what it was like for me, and, and I was quick to mention that this is just only one experience. You can talk to someone else that may have had a different experience, so you can't judge everybody else from the South based on my experience. I, I, I didn't grow up in a ghetto, you know. I didn't grow up on a farm, although we moved from the farm when I was just a toddler. I did go to segregated schools. and So, so I, I, I educated Dr. Schwartz. And then after I had finished educating him about my life history and growing up in the South, I asked Dr. Schwartz, could you tell me what it's like for a white boy growing up in the Midwest? And he had to compose himself <laughs> because he wasn't used of the tables being turned on him or somebody to ask a professor to give the same kind of information that he's asking someone else to give. He learned a lesson that day that it is just as important for you to learn about how a black boy grew up in the South to you. It's just as important to me to know about what a, how a black uh, white boy ended up living in the Midwest and how he lived in the Midwest. So after he composed himself, he put together a little a little narrative, you know, I know he was kind of uncomfortable, caught off guard. But anyway, he told me a little bit about what it was like growing up in the Midwest because it would have been a shame for me to go to the University of Wisconsin and help educate them about, you know, the South. And I don't get any information from you about uh, what it's like to grow up in the, in the Midwest. And after all, that's why I came to Wisconsin to get an education not only at the university but with the people that i talked to and, and I, I i met along the journey that's just as important to my education as the formal education that i got in the university and i've always been like that because sometimes you learn more just from talking to the regular people everyday people that you meet i, I visited three native american reservations up there i had never been on a on a Native American reservation. I visited Red Cliff, Lacto Flambeau, and Bad Rivers reservations. So when I decided to leave Wisconsin, uh, and, I, and I left Wisconsin with the intention of coming back to the South, because I felt like I was needed more in the South than I was needed in the Midwest. So you, so you was ready and, to take on the challenge. And I was ready to take on the challenge because uh, uh, the, the South was the area that needed more, I call it the new reconstruction, because it was the frontier for freedom and justice and equality. I mean, it was where the, uh, the biggest part of the fight was being waged for freedom, justice, and equality. And so now I had the opportunity to come back to the South and do it from a research perspective, from an educational perspective, to help our people overcome things that had held us down for years. Now, I knew that I was not going to be able to do everything that I wanted to do, but I felt like like the opportunity to do that was there. So, and I had prepared myself for this. And so now I want to come back to the South and study. I want to study the plantation. That was one reason that I wrote this book called Plantation Society <laughs> and Race Relations, The Origins of Inequality because I feel like we needed more education and understanding of just what the plantation meant to black people in the South. I, I wrote 
this book with the assistance of my colleague, David Nadneris, who is a, a Jewish American man. And, and we share some stories about that. Even what it's like to live in, 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 the, in the United States, being a Jewish American, as opposed to being an African American. Because they had their hardships too. So, so were you thinking about writing a book about plantation? Oh yes. Before oh you yes, I was thinking about writing this book before I returned to the South. Let <laughs> <laughs> me share this story with you right quick. Yeah. Uh, you invited me back in the days to visit Rosemount Plantation. Rosedown. Rosedown Plantation. That was my first time visiting a plantation for the purpose of tourism. To and I went yeah. with you. I learned something at that plantation. I'm going to share it with you right now. That was the time when the Rose Down had three floors, three levels. The second floor was a floor for the children, where the children stayed. And then the third floor, this is the, uh, the master's bedroom. It was the first time I sort of and understood when we said we want the master bedroom, yeah. it didn't mean what I thought it meant. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All this time, I thought it meant the biggest room in the house. Yeah, you know, but it, it meant that it literally was the master's. Yes, the room where the master lived. That's in. right. And that was the, the first time I had the, the, processed the, that the, like that. The owner of the plantation and his family, the husband and wife, live on the top floor. The master's bedroom had took on a whole different meaning for yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the main reasons I wanted to do research on the, on the plantation and write this book because I feel like I did not have a full understanding of the role of the plantation in black American history. And I feel like the, the previous books had not really researched it from a, a perspective that looked at the enslaved people and how the plantation was the seedbed for inequality in America and how it gave rise to inequality and race relations. And so that's what I wanted to look at in that book and then I, I hope that that I, 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 we succeeded. I'm sure that we revealed a lot of things that, that the traditional books had not covered, which looked at the economics of the plantation. I feel like I could research that better if I were to return to the South. And I wanted to study African-Americans, race relations. And so the South was the best area to do that in. And so that's why I wanted to return to the South because it was a frontier for uh, research on to enlighten people about uh, freedom, justice, and equality because it was kind of like the hotbed of where uh, the fight was being waged and whether the, uh, the roots of black people who came largely from the South because of the plantation uh, era. So I, now given that I wanted to return to the South, where in the South was I going to go? Because you know I could go any place, Georgia, South Carolina, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi. So I said well my first uh, opportunity was to go to Virginia. I was offered a position by one of my past mentors named C.C. Lewis, Dr. C.C. Lewis. He was at Virginia State. It's a traditional HBCU, which is a historical black college and university. And he said, well, why don't you come to Virginia State? I wasn't thinking seriously of it because I really wanted to get uh, back to Louisiana. 
I decided to, to go to Virginia State because at that time I was ABD, all but dissertation, and I wanted to spend a, a year getting back into circulation and also completing my dissertation. And so I had the opportunity to, to do that. So in the summer of 1972, I attended a conference in Washington, D.C., a sociology conference where I met three professors from Louisiana State University. Uh, they uh, met me and we began to talk and they discovered that I was from Louisiana. And they told me that they were recruiting uh, professors to come to Louisiana State University. And I said, to them, that's fine. And then they asked me, once they talked to me and found out about my background, if I were interested in coming to LSU. And so I asked them a lot of questions. Well, what, what's, what is the, uh, the, the educational system like there now? And uh, because I had never been to LSU. I had been to Southern University of Grambling, but I'm a citizen of the state of Louisiana and had never set foot in Louisiana State University because it was off limits for black folks because of racial segregation. I, I didn't know any more about Louisiana State University than I knew about Timbuktu, you know? <laughs> so it was like a foreign country to me in my own country, in my own home state that I had never visited. And so I wanted to know how much things had, had changed and and I could read and see what the media said. And they told me all things were beginning to change and they were, they had about 500 African-American students there and everything. And so they said, well, why don't you come and F see for yourself? F 500 out of how many? Uh, about nine to 10,000, 2.3%. Uh, they said, why come and, uh, why not come and see for yourself? And, and and said, we'll pay for your expenses to come down for an interview. And I thought that was kind of strange because it seems like they were willing to almost- Accommodate you. Uh, yeah, accommodate me and, and uh, award me a position before I even had come for an interview. I said, well, no, I would like to just come down and, and look over the institution and the program. And, and so they said, fine. Uh, we'll get in contact with you. I gave them my contact information. So lo and behold, about a week later, I got a call from the chairman of the department named Quinn Jenkins. He said he was contacting me about coming to LSU for an interview. They had an opening for an assistant professor of sociology and they wanted to know if I was interested. And I told them that I didn't know if I was interested or not, but I would be willing to come down to look over the program. I accepted the interview after discussing it with my wife. She said, well, you know, why not just go and explore? Since you've never been there and, then, and you don't know what the conditions are and how much has changed. Truthfully, I accepted an invitation to come down and educate myself about Louisiana State University. Since I did not have the opportunity to visit there in my life while I was living in Louisiana. Now ain't that something yeah, about that's interesting. returning to the state to what seemingly like was a foreign country and, be, and, and being interviewed for a job that was off limits to black folk just a few years before. I boarded the plane up in 
in uh, Washington, D.C., because they're 20, 125 miles from Richmond, uh, which was the nearest city to Petersburg, Virginia, where Virginia State College was located. And so I made my way to Louisiana, did a presentation to the faculty, did an interview with the faculty, did an interview with uh, the chairman of the department, and everything was going kind of smooth. And I said, maybe something is must be wrong. Everything's going so smooth. I know that everything ain't this peaceful. <laughs> and so I went out and and looked around campus and talked to a few of the black folks. Because if you ever want to know what's going on, talk to you. yeah, talk to your folks. <laughs> they can tell you what's going on. And sure enough, there was all types of uh, demonstration and stuff that were going on. I talked to the student leader, and name was Johnny Duncan. He was leading a, a group to the chancellor's office and stuff like that. What, so, what, what year was this? So th this was uh, latter part of 1972, the winter of 1972. I looked around the campus, and the more I observed, the more I, I thought that, well, look, a few things may have changed, but a lot of things still remain the same. And so I'm not sure if I want to go into this kind of environment, but I'm going to complete this interview. And so I had a 10 point, 10 point negotiation plan. 10 point that you, that you developed. Yeah. And I, it was an experiment to really see how far they would be willing to go to hire this black man from Louisiana who had left the state and went to Wisconsin now was coming back to his home state in an institution that was off limits to him just a few years prior. I went over, went down the list. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. There, he agreed to everything. I said, this is too easy. <laughs> that you made, should have, in my mind. You should, should have yeah. done a 13 point plan. Yeah, and they, they agreed to position, rank, duties, salaries, relocation and readjustment allowance, everything. But the, the, the final thing was relocation and readjustment. No, they hadn't talked about that then. And they asked me, what do you mean by that? I said, well, if I were to come to work to LSU, I don't see any uh, neighborhoods or areas around the school that I would be comfortable to live in with my family. And that was true, you know, because most of the black folks in Baton Rouge lived in the north, in Scotlandville, north Baton Rouge and a few in some places in South Baton Rouge, Old South Baton Rouge, and a few scattered out in the southeastern part of the, of the city. And I said, uh, it's going to cost me more to live where I want to live and to find a suitable place for my children to attend school. I need more compensation for that because it's going to be more costly for me to work at LSU than for the average faculty person you have there. Now this was just a sophisticated way of telling them what the cost of being black was. Okay. And, and, and see, for years, decades and centuries, being black was a liability. And still it is to a, a certain extent. If you have an education and something that is in demand, it can be an asset. They needed me more than I needed them. And as I told one friend after I had finished the interview, when the demand is high and the supply is low, the price goes up. So the cost of being black 
I was going to turn it around to make it work in my favor rather than against me. So how much are they willing to pay to hire this black professor who is a rare commodity? The first African-American was hired in 1971 in the architect department, uh, um, Julian White. And I was in the second batch of blacks that they invited to LSU. So, so they hired one a year? Yeah. <laughs> That's progress. So, so uh, I was playing hard to get for a good reason. Because I was a rare commodity. I didn't create the system, but I was not going to let the system use me to its advantage. And that was my thinking. And as I indicated that, well, I didn't create the short supply of blacks with a PhD degree. In 1970, there were only 120 blacks in the whole USA with a PhD degree in sociology. 120 in the whole USA. Over the life history of this country, a sad showing. Uh, so I was fortunate enough to be one of those. So the question is, is how much is this worth to you? I had read an article by Paul Seeger called The Cost of Being a Negro in America. <laughs> and, and in his article, he said the cost of being a Negro is that you're giving up at least 25% of your value because you're being underpaid just because you are a Negro. And, and that was been the history of, of black folks in America, from slavery to freedom and beyond. If you got a job, you were gonna get less than what the whites were, were, were making. I mean, that, that was just the norm. And it's still like that to a certain extent. Black folks are underpaid in America. So I, I, I I, I was, and, 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 and sometimes they have equal credentials and even better credentials, but they get lower pay. So I was determined that I was not going to be an underpaid Negro working at a predominantly white university. If I were going to come, I would have to come making the salary that I could live with that I thought that I was worth. I don't care if it's more than what the white folks are getting paid, that's okay. I'm not negotiating for them. I'm negotiating for me. The chairman of the department said, what do you mean by relocation and readjustment allowance? And so I had to break it down to him in terms where he could understand that it would cost more for me to live in Baton Rouge and to work at LSU than it would be for the average white professor. In terms of schools, and I had visited the schools, neighborhood, and I, I didn't mention this, but I implied it. What I would have to go through in terms of the emotional stress, <laughs> you, you know. You, you want to get compensated in advance for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 and, and, and to come here and work, and I knew, I knew that it was going to be a challenge, you, you know, how people uh, treat you and derogate you. And I said, if, if I'm going to have to survive in this kind of hostile environment, I'll, at least I can get compensated. I ain't going to be underpaid. And, and being subjected to a hostile environment at the same time. Uh, Professor Jenkins said, well, look, we can't promise you that. But I go to the dean, and his name was Irving Bird, and I had to get permission from the dean. So he went to the dean, he said, next morning, 
I'll give you an answer. I came back the next morning, the final day for the interview, and he said, the dean told me that I could pay you what you asked, but we can't call it relocation and readjustment. We call it salary adjustment. I said, well, it doesn't matter. Well, it doesn't matter what you, you call don't care it. What you know, they call it. As long as you increase my salary by, it's about $1,000 beyond what we had already agreed on to uh, accommodate me as, as a black professor. And I didn't, I didn't tell him that. I called it relocation readjustment because whether he understood it or not, as long as I got what I was asking for, that was all that mattered to me. Uh, so he said, well, the dean told me that you have a budget and you have to live by your budget and you can pay high two people or high one, but you're not getting any more money. So you can figure it out. In other words, so he left it to the chairman to make the decision. So the chairman uh, told me, he said, we are willing to give you the extra compensation if you will come to LSU. And I said, okay. I said, well, I don't have any other requirements, but I can't give you an answer now because I have to go back and talk to my wife and my family. Because when I move here, I'm talking about my family has to move here and my wife has to be a part of my decision. So I went back to Virginia and I talked it over with my wife and my wife left the decision to me. She said that, that if we return to Louisiana, that I could make the decision and she would go along with my decision. But it still was not over because I had to call my parents and I called my parents and talked to my dad first. I said, Dad, they offered me a position now at Louisiana State University. Now, Dad was a, a man of great wisdom, but short words. And, and his yes is yes and no is no. And they know maybe. And, and so his advice to me was that you looked at it, you see what the situation is, we help you get to where you are now, and so you made your own decision. Next, my mother. Now, my mother, she was a woman of great wisdom as well, and, and, but she liked to talk to you and go over in detail, you know, and, and, and she told me, Junior, yeah, my name is, I'm a Junior. Junior said, oh, you know, we, she said, we always told you that if you got your education, you know, the sky's the limit, that you could be anything you wanted to be. Although we realize how the situation is in the country, but we always told you that. Work hard to educate all of our children, and we're pleased that you've gotten to this point. And now uh, we feel like we have already paid the price for your admission to go to LSU with our wet blood, sweat, and tears. Our, our folks have already paid your price to go to LSU. So if you want to go to LSU, you decide, and we'll support whatever your decision is. After I talked to my family, my wife, and my parents, that gave me confirmation that I was gonna accept the position at LSU. Despite the the, the, the struggles, the, the desegregation movement that was going on despite the commotion about um, 
uh, inequalities in Louisiana despite the, the fact that Louisiana was still had major issues in the educational system despite going back to a, a state that was at the bottom of the hierarchy in most socioeconomic uh, things, I decided and my family decided to come back to Louisiana because we felt that first of all is home, second that you can help make the place a better place to, than it was when you left. Third is that uh, you, you would have the opportunity to do it as a professor where you can not only teach people across racial lines but do research like the book I did. And if you can do that then you would have achieved your objective in going to LSU. And because of you coming to LSU and your journey, which you just talked about, from leaving Louisiana, coming back to Louisiana, and you was able to start what you call a triple AS program at LSU. Tell us right quick, what was triple AS? Yes, well after working in the sociology department and achieving tenure and moving up through the ranks, I became a full professor in 1977. And, uh, I had always felt that the LSU was lacking in historical knowledge about black people. Lacking, both, or they, they just care less anyway. Would you yeah, both in terms of formal courses and programs and cultural activities. And, and so b before the African and African American Studies program was started, we had already started the Black Faculty and Staff Caucus from two years after I got there, 1975. Uh, Carolyn Collins, uh, Alan Lee, and myself were the founders of the Black Faculty and Staff Caucus. In other words, we had something like the Louisiana Legislative Black Caucus at LSU okay. to help advance the cause of black people at LSU. You can read about it in my book. But we felt that if we were going to work at LSU, we had to help create an environment that was was less hostile and more receptive to black folks. That we could not work there in that kind of environment. Not could we recruit people to come to LSU without trying to help change the environment for black folks. Culture had to change. We needed more black cultural programs and activities. That was the reason that we helped uh, found the African American Culture Center is still there. You may know about it. Uh, we 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 started the 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 Black Student Academic Awards program, what you call Black Scholars. It's still there. We started the um, Black Faculty and Staff Coalition, so Blacks who are on the faculty and Blacks who are on the staff could help promote the interests of Black people at LSU. We help uh, promote the integration of sports at LSU. I know you are a football player that came in around 1977 and, and we had started a movement to help integrate sports because before you got there, there were no black cheerleaders at the football games. And, oh, I, and, do, I do remember that. And so uh, we intervened 
in that to to bring about uh, more black participation and in, in recruitment uh, for athletics. And, and we just thought it was a shame that the football team could be as high as 80% black and the student body could be about 8%. Now something was wrong with that formula. And, and so I, we would tell the chancellor that we want you to use the same type of recruitment method to go out and recruit black students like you, as you do black athletes. If you can recruit that many black athletes, why can't you recruit at least 10% of black students at LSU? And this was a time when recruiting blacks became more popular and you know the story because you are an athlete and you were part of a wave of, of black athletes who came into LSU and helped transform the the, the athletics program to contribute to the uh, the salaries of of all the coaches that making multi-million dollar salaries and the, and the prestige of the university and and promoting the economic welfare of the university. But what were you getting besides the scholarship? Matter of fact, Doc, when, yeah. when, when we when we thought about it, you know, particular football. Football is the biggest revenue sport, producing yeah. sports yeah. at most universities. But at LSU, you have over, I think it's over 1,400 athletes. Yeah. And most of the athletes were of European descent. And I would say probably about, mm, besides football, basketball, track, you got soccer, volleyball, swimming, you, you know, uh, gymnastics, you had all kinds of yeah. other sports. Right. That was mostly other uh, descendants. Yeah. And but football supported all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so oh, yeah, it generates football, the revenue so, that drives the other athletic right. programs and the university. So and so, the alumni. So the sport that produced the most was was really football, but other more more benefited because yep. of that. Absolutely. And the people who played the, the game. Absolutely. And I, and I call it the sports industrial complex. See, the sports industrial complex is where athletics contribute to driving the economic engine of the university. One of the largest economic engines of the university is generated from sports. Even people who contribute to athletics sometimes contribute to uh, the Tiger Athletic Foundation to the university. And some of the revenue, not nearly enough, from sports go to support education. And this is one of the things that we, we fought for to, to, to get a larger share of the money generated from sports because we know black athletes are helping to generate this. So why not uh, utilize some of these resources that black athletes are helping to generate to help promote recruitment of other blacks on the academic side. And, and that's not what the interest is. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, they, they made some concessions, but not nearly enough. And I'll tell you one of them, because Carolyn Collins, she was one of the, the yeah. three of us who was the founder of the Black Faculty yeah. Staff Caucus. Yeah. Dr. Carolyn Collins. Dr. Carolyn yeah. Collins, right. She was dean of the junior division at the time. We all had to go through her. And they allocated some money to start the Summer Bridge Program, where they would bring young uh, black students in during the summer 
or get them a head start and get them oriented to the university and and uh, it, was, it was a very successful program where the athletic department supported that the monies from it at least supported it but it would not have happened if she and myself and the, the, the whole caucus had not been had not requested and protested to get these funds. Y'all was an organized group of basically three, the fierce three, who, who made a lot of things happen at LSU. Absolutely. Absolutely. You, you, Dr. Tom Durant, Dr. Dr. Carolyn Collins, and Dr. Allen Lee. Dr. Allen Lee. I we were the Dr. founders Lee. of the Black Faculty and Staff Caucus. Okay, now well, who was pulling? How did the AAAS get started? Okay. Well, what do you, AAA you see, stand for? You see, you need uh, a foundation before you can venture out into other areas. After the African American Culture Center was developed around 1999, then we felt that that's not enough because the Culture Center can be closed the next day. We want something that is permanent, a permanent part of the educational mission of the university. We didn't get any traction at first. The only thing that happened was that they had a few courses in African American history. They hired Charles Vincent from Southern University, Dr. Vincent. He came and taught a course on African American history. And they hired another professor from Southern to come in and teach, kind of like adjunct. Dr. Troy Allen? He was later, later. after the program got started. But see, we, we, we wanted a full-fledged uh, program in our department. After we had fought, it seems like it wasn't going to happen. Lo and behold, in uh, 1994, Dean Carl Rotter, who, who was uh, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and a history professor at LSU, uh, called me and said, uh, would you be on a committee to explore the possibility of establishing an, an African-American studies program at LSU. And I said, well, what kind of program do you have in mind? He said, well, that's what I want the steering committee to address. And so I said, sure, I would be happy to be a part of this. And what year was that? This was 1994. And so we put together the steering committee we recommended it had blacks and whites on the steering committee. We recommended to start with a minor in African and African-American studies and then gravitate toward a department. Uh, he agreed, the faculty senate agreed, and not that everybody wanted it, but the majority agreed. Vice Chancellor of Academic Affairs agreed. Uh, they were in a position whereby they, they really couldn't say no or it would have been hard for them to say no. When we pointed out what was happening at LSU and the landscape and what's going on in athletics and the whole program, that if you really are serious about desegregating LSU, you need to be serious about promoting this department. If you're serious about uh, changing the cultural atmosphere of this university, then you need to seriously consider uh, this, this program. 
if you're serious about educating people about black history and culture and making a more holistic university, then you need to consider this program. But the problem was that, that after getting the administration to agree to, to start the program, the challenge then was to get the money to support the program. And that's always the case. You can have a program, but do you have the resources to run it? The professors, the faculty, the staff, the, 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 the programs, the support for the programs. And that's why we got stalled. We got the program on paper. We offered Swahili as a foreign language. That was unheard of. We offered a course on Africa today. That was unheard of first in the history of LSU. We offered a course on introduction to African and African American studies. Doc, you remember you put me on the steering committee? Yes, that's right. You were on the steering committee. <laughs> I represented uh, the community. Yes, we, we involved business the community. Man in community. Business man in Absolutely. the community. Absolutely, and that was very important because you didn't have but a small core of black folks at LSU. So get the, to get the community support would even be uh, more valuable for us to, because we will have strength in numbers <clears throat> to get support from people outside of the university as well as those inside the university. So you were on the steering committee, and, and but that, that was the way you got on the steering committee was that after I was appointed to be the, the director of the program, I formed the steering committee. So you, you formed the steering committee? Yes. And you came by Buffalo as, as Wings? director. <laughs> you came to that's Buffalo right. Wings, come, just come to the restaurant all the time. That's right. Talk, but. And, and uh, uh, I recruited you and, and, and quite a few other people in the community. And we met at Buffalo Wings, that was for your restaurant at the time. And it would occasionally come to lunch there. And so we had good camaraderie of people in the community and the blacks who were at LSU. But that was not enough because the, it was still a, a program, not a department. And, and so the push was made for uh, the program to become a department. But I retired in 2009 before that could happen. But the foundation for it had already been established. And so, uh, lo and behold, 2020, the Board of, LSU Board of Supervisors and all of its wisdom and, and expertise decided that they were going to um, vote to make the African and African American Studies Program a department. Now, that just didn't happen either. People sometimes just don't have a dream and decide they're going to do something uh, or, or, or a touch of emotion or whatever. Uh, the foundation had been laid. There was a, a growing increase in African-American students. The, the, the percentage of African-American students had gotten up close to 10%. Still far from what it should be, we wanted it up to 20%. The percentage of blacks in the state of Louisiana is about 30%, so that would have been ideal. But we had set 20% as being our next rung on the ladder to reach. And here, now we are on that 
and, and we were stalled out at 10%. You can't recruit no more athletes. The majority of the football and basketball teams are already black, so how are you gonna recruit more blacks at? See, they have to be other non-athletes non you know, to get the numbers up. But Doc, but I want to say this here, I mean, we had a, you'd always come through Buffalo Wings and we had those, we'd have our powwow sections, segments at Buffalo Wings, you bring your colleagues, we would have a lot of discussion going on. But I really appreciate you in a way where, wherever you moved at in society, you kind of brought me along with you. <laughs> I was always a very appreciative that you, you know, you, wherever you went, you asked me to serve, and I and I was honored that you thought enough of me. You valued my my point of view, my perspective. That you yeah, wanted because you were you were unlike most of the athletes well, who just want to come play football, maybe get a, a a contract to play pro ball and leave, and not become involved in academics. You showed the interest where you want to become involved. I, I don't know about when you first got there, but I know when before you left. Uh, you, you showed an interest in that, and you showed an interest in wanting to interact with, you know, professors and staff, and and wanted to move things forward, and 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 wanted to be a leader in it. I had already de determined that 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 you were one of the athletes that could help promote the interests of African Americans and also help the university at the same time, which you did. So it was an easy uh, move to invite you to be on the steering yeah, committee. But not that, let me just let, let, the, let the audience know, the listener audience know that even when he went on to uh, become a board member at the, what we call RAM today, the River Road African American Museum, and it was on Tuscuco Plantation at the time, the director was Kathy Hambrick and her brother Hambrick, I mean, uh, Darham, but also we had Harold, who was a, a, a very instrumental in putting all this together with Kathy. And Doc was on the board, and you invited me yeah, <laughs> to well, come on the board. A, that was another instance, <laughs> so, yeah. you know, where we continued our relationship and dialogue to the River Road African American Museum, where you served on the board and was a valuable member of that board to help us out at a critical time when we need funds to keep the museum open and 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 you helped us out a, a great deal there so uh and then later another venture that we we and i was involved in some of the things that you were oh, that started. Doc, doc, our favorite thing was when we had a we call it the black in venice museum come to town yeah lady shala sabaz yeah out of california which was put together, and we and we had came up with a theme for that uh, for that event. It was a three day event yeah. uh, that was held at Leo Butler Community Center, where they yeah. displayed about the, the the black in Venice. And but the, remember the title of our theme? Uh, I don't remember right offhand. Great minds. Oh, great minds creating great things. Creating yeah. great. <laughs> yeah. And you well, that, well, that, that. well, that was one of the the best programs that we've had in the city of Baton Rouge since I've been here. I haven't I haven't seen one any better than that one because it was so basic, 
and important and significant to promote education of children. And we was fortunate. And, 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 and it was, I mean, people came from all over. They had children there on buses. Oh, yeah, we had, we had to, we, I don't know how, I can't remember I, I, how we had done it, but we had the local East Baton Rouge Paris the, and the outside parishes bring this to busloads of children yes. every day for yeah, three every days. Every day for three days. And that had never been done before. And that I don't, I, don't remember, I don't remember how that happened, but we, we, we made well, that happen. Well, I, I think you helped make it happen, but but we all, it was a collective effort. We, 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 we got together and we had a committee and we decided to do it. But I think it, it, it was basically uh, your idea and I was really happy to facilitate it because in our discussion down at the Buffalo Wings restaurant, we would talk about uh, how we could do it. No, no, that time I was doing. The, no, you were, you were. I, I run a program behind the behind the mall at that time. You, you were, you were in. The, that was yeah, in two thousand. Right. Yeah, that you was in Buffalo uh, Wings yeah. at the time. But anyway, you were in business, a businessman, and you wanted to promote youth activities. And so, uh, although I was a professor, I wanted to promote community activities. And so, and my interest, of course, in African American studies and African American communities. And, and that's another aspect about returning to Louisiana and the LSU. If LSU had not been located in a city that had a sizable African-American population, I doubt if I would have come back to Louisiana, not here anyway, because I had to be in a setting where I could be engaged with the black community. And that way they would be the beneficiaries of some of the ideas I had and my knowledge. I was not going to give it all to LSU. <laughs> I wanted to share it with the community. Well, you did it. You threw shallow back and, and that's, that's mm -hmm. the way I, uh, I, that's the way I think. I just can't be bound to one place, especially uh, LSU, uh, because that I needed more avenues to share with the community. And Baton Rouge, uh, had had a sizable African American community or communities, and there was an opportunity to implement some of the things that I wanted to do with black youth and and people. And 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 now, of course, it didn't work in all instances because all black people are not interested in promoting black causes. I learned that, you know, all black people are not your no. friend, but you have to help educate them and try to motivate them because we are fighting a common problem, you know? And, but I, I had some, some people who criticized me for going to LSU, black people, criticized me for not going to Southern or Gremlin, and criticized me for working on a plantation, which they call LSU. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, yeah. they criticized me too for going. Yeah, you know, yeah, going you know, so I had to go through that too. You know, I'm sure that you, uh, people ask you, well, why didn't you go to Southern or Grambling? You know, and 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 you had to. Well, Doc, what I typically tell them is that I'm not the one that was marching and fighting to go to the white schools. <laughs> so, you know, somebody got out there was fought to yeah. fight to make this happen. Yeah. So somebody did and the door was open. So, sure. you know, Why not that, that was the purpose. That's right. And so we're recruiting uh, black students at LSU because 
now we have a critical mass of, of black people there that we can help promote it. And this is what I, we told the administration at LSU, that because you recruited us, we are helping you now desegregate the university because you, we are the best uh, resource that you have to recruit outside of the university when they see other black folks there. As a matter of fact, y'all was keeping George Eve off of the theater. Yeah. yeah, oh yeah, <laughs> George NAACP. E was, yeah. George Eve was coming George didn't give him no slack. Yeah, and, and so they finally realized that, but the problem was that it, it, it worked black folks without compensation because they wanted you to help recruit black folks, but they didn't want to compensate you for it. Not to the level that you should be. And so that was an issue. I was on the 63 committees that dealt with desegregation at LSU during the course of my tenure there. 63 committees? 63 committees. It never ended. Huh? It never ended. No, it never ended. Matter, fact, your, matter of fact, your book that you wrote. Yeah, this book. What, what's the uh, name of that book? A, a View from the Inside, 36 Years of Desegregation. All, all uh, 36 years were very important. All 36 years, because each year represented a new part of the movement in the transformation of LSU. Yeah, I call it the, the social, cultural, and racial transformation of LSU. Now, now a lot of the, the new students may not know what went on, you know, in terms of the history, but you can read the book and to find out what happened before you arrived there. And that book calls, it's the, the View from the Inside. A view 30, from the Inside. 36 years. 36 years of desegregation, and it, it's a picture of a man. That, that man is you. From the outside, <laughs> who, who is me, looking inward from the outside wishing that he could get in to help transform this institution to what it should be. Do you think you helped to transform it to what it should be? Oh, undoubtedly. Oh, right. Undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, I have no doubt that, that I helped. Now, whether or not I did enough, but I did what I could. But I think that uh, the, the two of the, the contributions that I made that with the assistance of others was the Black Faculty and Staff Caucus that was founded in 1975 and still exists to this day in 2021. Because if you don't organize and have group support, you're not going to get as far. I mean, the history has shown us that. And, and so this was sort of the, 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 the engine for internal desegregation of LSU. How did LSU receive your book? When, you, when was that book published? Uh, it, it was published in 2017. And it was well received, uh, but I don't have any notion of knowing what the reactions were at certain levels, but I was invited back to do a presentation twice I was there for both of them. And I also uh, suggested that they give the LSU Board of Supervisors a copy of it, and that happened. Because I felt like if you're going to be in a leadership position for the university, you ought to know the history, all of the history of LSU. 
especially the history of black people at LSU. So through the um, Multicultural Center and the um, Office of Diversity under uh, Dr. Navarez, they purchased a copy of my book for every member of the LSU Board of Supervisors to help educate them about the history. How long ago was that? Uh, that was uh, uh, 2018 when they invited me back to make a presentation after the book was published. So uh, I cannot help but think that if they read this book, they would be more educated and aware, not only of the history of desegregation, but what the future of LSU should look like. Because you can't plot out a path of where you want to go unless you understand where you have been. You know, and that's the Sankofa proverb that we look back in order to move forward. And, and that um, uh, we seek to move ahead in the, the, the future by looking back to benefit on what we have learned from the past. And, and so uh, I, I don't have any doubt that, that uh, I made a contribution. I did research that helped enlighten people dealing with race relations, African-American studies. We offered the first Swahili course at LSU as a foreign language. So instead of taking French or Spanish, Japanese or Chinese, they had Japanese and Chinese there. So why not have Swahili? And so Swahili was taught as a foreign language. Under this program, we offered the first course on Africa today. We have students who have majored, the, the, the hundreds of students who by now have majored or minor in African-American studies. And it helped to educate white folks about black people. Don't, don't uh, forget that. There were bold white folks, students, who decided to take a class in African-American studies. Because one white student said that, look, this is something that we have not been taught in the public schools, and now we're in college, and we've been right here in Louisiana, you know, and we have been deprived of education by black people. And many of them, many <laughs> now, now that's a statement. That yeah. is a statement. Yes, indeed. From a white student. So how does the university accommodate these students, even white students who want to learn about black studies? And some of them had more knowledge about England and Europe and than they had about their own country in Louisiana. They go all the way to France and Germany and England and they ask you, say, what about the black folks there? And they didn't have nothing to say because they, don't, they didn't know anything. Uh, uh, they can only repeat the stereotypes yeah. that they heard. So now, white students have an opportunity to learn about black people because after all, isn't black history a part of American history? Isn't black history a part of the history of this country? Isn't black history a part of the transformation of this whole country and the development of this country in certain ways that even though were difficult and placed a hardship on black, but still it happened? 
finally, Louisiana State University was wise enough to venture into African American studies. It has become a department on paper, but still it has to become a department in terms of uh, development. And, and this is this is where it is right now. So we still have. Yeah, but the foundation has been laid, <clears throat> and I was happy to be a part Matter of fact, that you, foundation. You, they made cert- you president emerit. Uh, I'm I'm uh, professor emerit. Professor emerit. And so that covers the whole waterfront. Okay. Now, what did, what does professor emerit mean? Emerit means that you have been. Uh, honored in a position as making an outstanding contribution to your field and your discipline at that university and that you have all of the privileges of uh, a faculty member uh, or a retired faculty person from the university you know like serving on committees and going back and uh, I got privileges at the the union and, and and what have you. I can participate in, in all university events and activities. It's not something that I saw. It's something that people saw and had to bestow on me because a colleague has to recommend your emeritus status. It, it, it doesn't originate with you. A colleague, someone uh, in your department or your profession or your uh, has to recommend that and it has to go through the department or through the board of supervisors but now you are truly one of our living legends doc you are, and i'm so elated to have, to know and feel that my history is tied with your history <laughs> so when, yeah. the, when the good things about it so when they talk about dr thomas durant they're gonna have to mention i was somewhere close by so, I, <laughs> so that's that, that's a beautiful thing I'm, I'm so honored and do feel privileged I've been a part of the River African American Museum because being a part of River African American Museum is really one of the reasons why I do what I do now it really is because my you know count time is doing the same thing preserve and uh, and, uh, and restore back the, 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 you know some history and culture of, of, our, of our people and the things that we have given, the things that we have done and to have you here and I mean I just hate to say we don't have enough time to to capture all your greatness, all the wonderful things that you have yeah. done, you have given and to watch you when you was at not when you was at but being part of Shallow Baptist Church how you was always getting involved, how always involved in the community. Yes, well, we've covered quite a bit, and the Baton Rouge segment may be something else that we can talk about at a later time because I've been active in the Baton Rouge community. Uh, and at my church, which is a part of the community, at Shiloh Missionary Baptist Church, and, and uh, we've undertaken some community projects in fact, a lot of people may not know that we had a drug prevention program for youth at Shiloh for 26 years, of which I was the director of and the organizer of it uh, uh, for 26 years. It was something that the, the, the pastor, Reverend Charles T. Smith, thought was important 
And he looked around in his congregation and he asked me if he, I would. He uh, saw a faithful member. <laughs> yeah, lead the effort. And I was more than pleased to do it. And I would say this, you know, without compensation. That's how you uh, do That's what you I do. I could have been compensated because <laughs> the money was coming from the state and the, and the federal level to have the program. But I decided that that I did not want to accept the salary for any work I did that was a part of the church. Because that's the, the meaning of the church is that you do, you voluntarily worship, you voluntarily serve. And I didn't feel right to take money on an assignment I was doing for the church. Because if you're working for the Lord, then you don't accept pay. Well, I don't know, uh, but most preachers wouldn't agree with that. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> of course. And, and it helps to promote the, the program for the church. And we had a, a pastor who was, had the insight to want to do it, and they had support from the community. And you had people in the congregation who was willing to, to help, you know, like myself. I was not the only one. Uh, but I chose to be a volunteer rather than a paid uh, member of, of the staff as director of the program. Uh, I'm happy that I was able to make a small contribution to uh, Baton Rouge because, you know, we, we hear so much talk about uh, move Baton Rouge and make America great again and, and uh, uh, promoting the community in Baton Rouge and we talk about all of the challenges that we face here in Baton Rouge. You know, the, the murder rate is higher than it ever had been this year in 2021 and, and now the pandemic is on us and, the suicide and, and we were already had, had a crisis already in, in Baton Rouge and Louisiana. The school system is having problems and the form of government is, is really problematic you know, because of the need to change our form of government and a whole lot of issues are going on. I feel that it, uh, if you can do your part to help improve things and make things better, then that would be a plus for Baton Rouge because we need all the, the people that we can to be doing positive things. Maybe uh, on another podcast we can talk about the need for police uh, and social justice reform not only in Baton Rouge but the whole country. Oh, the whole country. That need to be and I'll speak to that topic at a later time. Yes. I, I, we would be elated to have you come in yeah. and give your insight and your knowledge and wisdom on uh, yeah. that particular subject matter. But right now we're going to say we thank uh, my lovely daughter Samia our photographer, videographer for once again being here with us, but I thank our living legend himself, uh, author, writer, Dr. Thomas J. Durant for being here and sharing his insight. Yeah. And, and and you could also be I'm a child of God. Oh, that's number one. Yeah. All right. All right then. Leave that and, out. And uh, yeah, thank brother. I, I don't have to answer to no man. We would like to thank brother Kwame O'Reilly. The Aqua. The Aqua. Once again for being here and sharing uh, with sharing with Count Time his insight and knowledge and wisdom of this of his journey and travel of yeah. eighty years. And thank you, uh, Brother L. D. Zobra and your 
lovely daughter. It's good to see uh, like a family team, father and daughter, to come and, and, and engage in an enterprise like this. Because you know, you don't see this every day. Sometimes the, uh, even in families, the children want to go one direction and the parents want to go another one. But Doc, we didn't see it, Doc. <laughs> she came kicking and screaming. I know, I know it's been a process, <laughs> but still, it, it's together. So that's good. No, Y'all keep you. moving yeah. forward. And your son, uh, uh, Kenyon, uh, also, uh, he, he owed me some money. So he had to come back and see me. But you ain't going to see him, then. <laughs> uh, he, owed, he owed me a, a lawn cutting, and, and so... Uh, but I hope that that he's doing well also because you have to motivate these youth. That's what I'm more interested in, getting them on the right track because they're going to be the next generation coming along and we're going to have to turn things over to them. And, and, and the question is, uh, are they ready? Mm. Are they ready? And because if they're not ready, it's gonna not gonna be good news. Not for us, nor yeah. our community. Yeah, for our folks, our family, and our our people, our community. The, the the worst thing that could happen is that the need arises and no one is ready to fill the shoes. I think about this all the time with, with my family, and I'm sure that everybody th th thinks about this with their families consciously making an effort to get them involved so that they, they can carry on the family legacies and you know, businesses or whatever they, the family has. Well, we just thank you, Doc. We so appreciate it. Well, you're welcome, and thank and you for, for being allowing me to share a, a part of my journey in life with um, your listening audience. But I want to say, too, when and one Doc Durant has something to do with count time, too, because when I was locked up and in prison he wrote to me he encouraged me he kept me focused so i really appreciate those letters those words of encouragement doc that you were sending me through your your meal when i was one of the ones who when the guy said oh when i was locked up and couldn't get to my family my children he was there for us he was there for yeah. me and i thank you so much for that yeah well you're welcome, and uh, whatever little bit I did or could do, I'm happy that I was able to do that because, you know, you can't give up hope, and we need each other to to do that, you know, to keep moving ahead, to know that even if it's ain't but one person that, that believes in you enough whereby they're not going to give up on you, then that could be the key to saving somebody from a life that went uh, disappointments or whatever. I, I have been the recipients of, of people myself, I had role models and mentors who helped me. And so if I can give back and help somebody else, then that's the way it should be. Everybody has a responsibility to help somebody else. We're all responsible for each other. That's why I can say that, because of you, man can shackle the hand, man can shackle the feet, but only you can shackle the mind. The mind is always free to travel wherever you dare to take it. Welcome to Count Time. Thank you. Thank you.